This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we'll be playing the second half of my conversation with anti-racism educator Paul Marcus of Community Change Incorporated. Last week, Paul talked about how learning that racism is a system and it's not just about how individuals treat and think about each other, shifted his whole understanding of the world. He likened it to the red pill in the movie The Matrix, where after taking it, you see the world as it really is for the first time. I've been thinking about what was the red pill for me, those moments when I really got something new about racism, even though it's such a work in progress. In the past week alone, I feel like I've taken two red pills, And I know, I know, in The Matrix, you only take one red pill, but bear with me. The first was listening to Paul in part one of this interview. He talked about Malcolm X saying that white people are the devil. And Paul said he never took that personally, that Malcolm X was talking about the system of whiteness, not about white individuals. And so he, Paul, agreed with him. And that helped me. I don't have to get stuck in guilt and shame for having all this unearned privilege. Letting go of that allows me to start working against racism more effectively. I can look for ways in which to use that privilege to speak up for those who are forced to navigate the world without it. This is something that Peggy McIntosh also talked about when I interviewed her a few weeks ago. With the recent news of the non-indictments of the officers who killed Michael Brown and Eric Garner, I've had the opportunity to think a lot about how the experience of dealing with police is totally different for black people than it is for me. I was at a protest in downtown Portland last week, listening to the various speakers, and it hit me. I got this visceral sense of fear, like, what would it be like if something bad happened to me and there was no one I could call for help, no one I could trust? That was another red pill. I always assume that the police are there to help me. I see them as someone I can turn to. The thought of having no one to call on for help was so frightening. I felt like I had a tiny glimpse of it for the first time, like a degree of vulnerability just walking around in the world that I had not appreciated at all. One other thing before we get to part two of this interview I want to mention is that we're going to talk about something called the implicit association test. But in the interview, we don't really explain what it is. So very briefly, it's a test created by Harvard researchers, which aims to measure racial bias by having people on the computer simultaneously sort black and white faces along with positive or negative adjectives. The test has shown that for white people, there's often this split-second delay in pairing black faces with positive words, exposing the unconscious biases that have been drummed into us all our lives. And if you were curious like I was to take the test and to learn about the unconscious bias that you have inside yourself, Google the implicit association test and you can take it yourself online. Here's part two of my conversation with Paul Marcus of Community Change Incorporated. As Horace Feldman used to talk about, we live in a nation that was founded on a a terrible contradiction. On on the one hand, quote unquote, all men are created equal. But on the other hand, clearly that's not the reality. And that contradiction is embodied in Thomas Jefferson. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote the words of the Declaration of Independence, yet for for, most of his adult life, he owned over 200 human beings and, and was never able to um, 
to give them up. And, and oftentimes you get it. I don't know if you've had this conversation with people you say, but, but, you know, he was just a man of his times. Right. And so if you think about the racist assumption in that statement, because it's, if he was, that's leaving out all the black population and the native American population and probably a lot of the female population. I was going to say, I get told that a lot about sexist things. <laughs> sure. So, and in fact, he, in fact, if you look at his times, there were a lot of white folks who were anti-slavery. And um, in fact, one of his, a good friend, his young neighbor, Edward Coles, um, begged him to become a model for freeing his slaves, knowing that, that Jefferson, with his stature, if he did it, that it would make a huge difference. And Jefferson was never, was never able to, to do it. You know, there's a, a wonderful book um, called Jefferson's Pillow. And it's and it's about it's about Thomas Jefferson and about this contradiction and and the title comes from the fact that Jefferson's earliest memory was being carried by a slave, on a pillow on a horse, and his and, you know that's a metaphor for his whole life. He, you know to 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 do to, to his achieve he could have never done Monticello would have never been built without, you know slave labor without the wealth that was created by slave labor you know and all of those pieces so that that becomes very complicated and and that's that's a window into the larger history of this country that that um i don't know i there there is no other country so you know slavery has been a worldwide phenomenon and and slavery was pretty much considered normal it's interesting that it it wasn't really until the declaration of independence gets written that that Declaration of Independence kind of creates a window for people to say, "Wait a minute! If all men are created equal, then so am I." And so, in, a, in it, you know, in a sense, the irony of it is, is that it's our our freedom actually creates the space for us to begin looking at, in particular, the African Americans looking at and talking about the opposite of that freedom. And 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 we need to understand that the freedoms that that we have. And many of the many of the um, material um, benefits that we have are built on the backs of of a lot of people. So that 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 and and, and I believe I firmly believe in one of, that that as a nation we need to come to grips and 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 almost do maybe do what South Africa did, but we need to we need to own our history and our you know that that that, that this country was violently taken from the people who lived here. And, you know, in fact, the, the wealth was created by taking that land. And so when, when we start looking at that history, one of the first um, acts that Congress passed in 1789 was the Naturalization Act, which a major part of it essentially said that white Europeans can become citizens. And, and I'm sorry. No, well, you're saying so many things. I want to talk about this facing history and sort of the South African example, because, um, in Maine, we are actually in the process of having a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is, I assume, what you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, with the government and the five nations in the, that comprise the Wabanaki people around the kind of a way that children were removed from the home. Mm-hmm. And it's the first state to do that, so we're be- it's beginning. It's just the tiniest first step. But, yes, I mean, what would it mean as a nation if we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about our, his- our racial history? Right. Has that ever been um, tried? Has that been proposed? I, you know, I don't, I don't know of anyone proposing that. I certainly know that those kinds of conversations have happened, and the conversations around, you know, people talking about reparations. Yes, exactly. You know, what we've done as a nation is we re- we've removed people from the land to let white people come onto that land to create wealth. So we we look at, for example, the Homestead Act. 
and I don't have the numbers in my head, but it's millions of acres. Um, and, and, and that land was given to white people. And there's a, there's a huge percentage of people who presently either are on that land who are, 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 or, or who have wealth in their family because of that land. And it's, it's, it's land that, for the, that, the most part, blacks didn't have. And likewise, and you probably know some of this history, but the, when we look at housing policy in the last century, um, you know, the, the federal government subsidized the building of the suburbs. So be, the, the, the Federal Housing Administration is created. And between 1933 and 1964, there's $120 billion in housing subsidies to, 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 to back up low, low interest loans. And 98.6% of that went to whites. And so now, is that what people white... is that what people are talking? I've I've been reading and hearing about the GI Bill. Is that distinct from the GI Bill, or is that what you're? No, that's a big that's a big piece. So the the, the FHA funding was part of the GI Bill. I see. So that so the so so that but that's a that's a huge piece of it. So that's a perfect example. You have somebody coming out of the war, and I'll I'll use the Boston area. So they come out of the war and they they buy a house, say in Newton. And, it, you know, they, they, they buy a house with a very low percentage mortgage, I don't know, one or two percent mortgage. Um, and they probably also get to go to school free because of of the of the GI Bill. And, and the GI Bill was available to everyone. However, because of redlining, um, blacks and, and because of redlining and, and, and actual restrictions, blacks were able to get loans to and were unable to move into the suburbs so that's happening and at the same time while blacks had access to money for education for the most part they were not allowed in 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 northern schools and so and so that they and, and the historically black colleges filled up and so people couldn't get educations but when we look at the housing so that that you know, that family buys that house um, you know, for twenty thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars in nineteen forty-eight, and hang on, hangs on to that. That house is now worth four hundred thousand dollars, and so they've 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 um, accumulated that wealth. And it's you know, it's nothing to do with them. They're good people. They're hardworking people. All of those kinds of things. But there were a whole lot of other good, hardworking people who, because of government and banking and business and realty policies didn't have access to that. And so when we look at the statistics, a recent Pew study showed that the wealth gap between the net worth, when we look at the average net worth for whites and blacks, it's 20 times for whites. It was it was eight times in the early 2000s, and we've gone through all the housing crisis. And so the Pew study has is at, at 20 times. Other people look at it differently, but people have it at least 12 times. And it's it's very much because of because the vast majority of those of us in the middle class, our our wealth is mostly in our homes. And so we have this situation where we have communities of color were disinvested and white communities were supported. And so when we look at those things, we look at the Naturalization Act, we look at the Homestead Act, we look at the um, FHA housing policy, and there's a lot more detail I could go into about that. Those, for me, are very clear examples of what I would call affirmative action for white people. Yet we never frame it that way. Right, never. <laughs> There's a structural reality, um, much of it based on these policies, in, in why we see concentrated poverty in communities of color. Um, we don't see there, there's a lot of impoverished white people, but for the most part, with a few exceptions, um, there's not concentrated white poverty. Um, low income whites often live in communities with much better services, uh, schools, education 
sports programs, so all of those kinds of things. And so, you know, it's this it's this structural reality that that we're living in, and 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 what what a place where and 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 it's certainly understandable because the vast majority of white people get their get get our information about black people from the media. Um, you know, when you look at a place like Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire, um, you know, I live in Vermont, and I, I talk about the deep north. When, but you know, the people here don't have a lot of direct interaction with black people and other people of color for the you know most part, except in some of the cities, and yet there's deeply entrenched racial animus. Right, and so I want to I want to ask you because the things that you're describing they have such a huge impact, and yet I think that um, for white people, particularly probably white people in in states like Maine and Vermont, where it, it is such a homogeneously white place, I'm so struck at how invisible this is, how invisible, how unmentioned, how untaught, so that it really is possible to be a very well-meaning white person and have no idea about the enormous advantage that has been given to us, that affirmative action, you know, at every step of the way. I think it's more than possible. I think it's most likely. Right. I mean, I think I think that's the reality that, that we're living in. So that gets back to one of my major learnings is that as a white person, I have a race and it's had a major impact on my life and it's had a major impact in forming the lenses through which I interpret reality. And that's a huge step for white people to make in the process of becoming racially literate. You know, because what, what you're describing is, in fact, we live in a racially illiterate society. And much of the work, I think we're beginning to see that much of the work we do is about racial literacy. So I'm curious, do, I'm curious about how you work with your own discouragement at times, Paul, because what, you know, what's clear is that it's very easy. In fact, it's a norm to, as a white person to be very privileged, to be completely unaware of it. So there's this kind of silence and unawareness that I think defines, you know, what it's like to be white. And when you when when one steps back and sees how huge and enormous this problem is, what keeps you doing this work, Paul? Um, you know, I, I guess I I, I, I can't say I, I don't get discouraged, but um, I feel um, this work and this learning has been so liberating for me. How has it been liberating? Um, it's it's impacted how I understand myself in the world it's impacted how i my relationships with uh, people of different races with women um it's 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 taught me i think humility um there was a time when i would walk in and i'd be in with in a group of white people and i'd be really angry at them and now i walk in and i just kind of love them and i love Mm -hmm. you know that 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 it's um it's that's you know that that gets back to that you know beat people over the head with this stick. It's like somebody goes to this very powerful experience of a workshop and they come out, and and it, it's like they forget that prior to that workshop they were the person who they might start at you know beating over the head with, and it was you know it was, it, it's like they forget that they weren't born knowing this, and that that that's true for all of us. Right. And so so for me it was, it was really understanding that and and understanding that of of you know it. We are. We're functioning in this system, and it's not our fault that that we were born into this system. And so, so that my work is to I give people a glimpse of that system, so that now, you know, we say I say this to students at the end of a class or people at the end of a workshop that you know, once you've seen the matrix, you no longer have the leisure to be clueless. It's now a choice. 
you have clearly got this idea that we were born into it. It's not, we don't have to take this on in terms of feeling guilty. You said you have not struggled personally with that. But I know so many people do. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, how do you, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm kind of imagining that part of what enables you to pour yourself into this work so fully is that you're not suffering with feeling like you're a terrible person for having so much unearned advantage. Mm-hmm. How did you get to that place of kind of forgiving yourself? Like this wasn't your fault. You just didn't, you know, you, you were taught this. It was that a struggle for you or did for some reason was that? No, it, it just made sense to me that, that my, the issue for me wasn't to feel, I, I had no control over the past. I have control over the present and the future, you know, in trying to make a different future. You feel like that's a big part of your work is helping white people kind of get over their shame so that they can get on with it and, and do the work? I, I, I do, but we do that through the process of, the, you know, through, through, through taking th- people through a process and getting to understand the systemic reality. You know, there's a great quote by Malcolm X. It's something like, um, um, guilt is the most common and least useful of emotions, of human emotions. And, and you know, guilt just it gets in the way. And, and um, you know, I've taken this stuff in all my life. It's, it's, it's part of me. And, and I can't, I can't help that. I have to acknowledge that. And so I think that, you know, another piece in this is in, in terms of the growth for white people doing this work is, 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 is understanding that, um, in a book called the racist mind, Raphael Ezekiel, Ezekiel at the end of his book talks about, it's like, if you grow up next to a cement factory, you breathe in cement dust all your life and it becomes part of you. And, you know, through no, you can't help that. And so acknowledging that, acknowledging that I, I am, as Horace taught me, I'm a racist anti-racist, that uh, I'm anti-racist with every fiber of my being, but I have this in me. You know, I have racism, sexism, and homophobia, and it comes up. Right, so it sounds like that is the antidote for guilt for you, is realizing that through no fault of your own, you absorbed all this stuff all your life, and, and now you're choosing to examine it, and that's something you can actually feel very good about. You're addressing it. Yes. Part of what inspired this series has been the events of Ferguson, Missouri, and um, there's so much discussion in the media about um, racial profiling among the police. And I wondered if you could explain how you understand what racial profiling is about, and in particular what the relationship is between racial profiling and implicit bias. Sure. Um, well, again, we, we're, we're living in this history where, where whiteness was constructed back in the early 1600s. And I think it's important to name that, that the concept of, of white uh, doesn't exist before um, the 1600s in this country. And, and that's a longer conversation, but I'll just, I just want to name that. And so we have this, we have this entire history um, that we've we've touched on a little bit, and we and we carry that within us, and 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 over the last number of years, there's been a lot of research done on on implicit bias. Um, you know, anybody who wants to can 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 go online and 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 do a web search for implicit bias testing, and you can um, the implicit associations test, and you can take it for race, you can take it for gender, and and you know, um, I, I don't. I, Thousands or millions of people have taken this test, and there's 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 a lot of data that show that we we all carry this with us, and so that's and, and when we look at at police work, we we know that there's been tests that show that if you put people into a practice range, um, police officers are more likely to make the mistakes of both white and black police officer of making the mistake of shooting an unarmed black. Um, you know, pop up than they would for a white person. I mean, there's 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 just so much data around this, and so 
you know, we, we carry that, we carry that, we all carry that with us. And it's certainly in, in the heads of all the people in law enforcement. And so do you ever think that it's unfair that police get a terrible sort of bum rap in our culture because they are the ones enacting the same implicit bias that we all have inside us? Wow, I've never thought of that question in that way. No, I think it's our, I, I, I think that, um, I mean, that, that we could use that as an excuse for all of the systems that we're dealing with. And I, I, I don't think that that's, that that's very helpful. I think the issue, you know, when these things happen, we know that, um, first of all, if it's really an atrocious, an out, outrageous thing that happens, they talk about it, how it's, um, you know, um, bad cops as opposed to the systemic understanding about what's going on. Um, and secondly, when we look at, you know, one of the one of the powerful pieces about what happened in Ferguson is that so much, almost every, you know, every two days on Facebook, a video would come out about a, a black person being either killed or, or you know, um, beaten up by police in in, in in almost all cases where that that didn't need to happen. Um, and so we need to step back and look at the systemic reality of what's of what's playing out. And one of the issues, again, for we'll make some progress on this when white people get just as outraged as black people right. and other people of color are about this. And, and, and part of that is, is that, again, living in this being um, um, sort of submerged in this, surrounded in this system, I think, um, and I'll, I, I think the vast, this is about seeing other people as fully human. And I think that we've been taught not to see that. And so I think there's a deep reality in our society that we, we don't see blacks and other people of color as fully human. That, that's Yes, I'm, thank you for saying that so starkly, even though it's so awful. Because that's what we really mean by implicit bias, isn't it? That we've been taught to think of black people as less than human, as less smart, as, I, I you know, I, I just think of less than in so many ways mm-hmm. and um and these i i find i can find these attitudes surfacing in myself and i catch them but it's it's profoundly humbling to realize that that's so deep in our consciousness for everyone in this culture and it's and it's profound in all aspects so we look at police work but then when you think about uh, the the work that you do when you think about therapy i i, I don't i think I, I think you're a therapist is that correct yes i'm a psychiatrist yes so what does that mean in the therapeutic relationship but you know when we look at social work for example we have a, a lot of white social workers working in in communities of color and and so that understanding you know <laughs> coming from this frame and trying to work with people across race that that in itself is important but also what is the meaning of race in a in a white you know a white therapist working with a white person because you know we'll come a long way again when we realize that all you know vastly majority maine white maine and vastly majority white vermont that 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 it's not that race isn't there that's highly racialized space but we don't see it as that that's right. We think, oh, we only have to work on our race issues if it's an interracial relationship. Exactly. So, Paul, I know that you travel nationally and you lead workshops and you go into communities and you go into organizations and you help people really look at issues of white privilege and white racism um, individually and in the institutions that they're part of as well as in the larger culture and the larger system. What is a good outcome for you when when you leave a group that you've been working with over some period of time, 
What is success for you if you've done your job well? Well, in a workshop setting, when we're sort of doing a day-long workshop, um, you know, I I have a saying on the bottom of it's the signature on my email, and it's a Daniel Bornstein quote, and it's um, education happens when you learn something you didn't know you didn't know. And my hope is, is that an outcome is, is that people will leave that room looking at the world differently and looking at themselves differently. And that we've, we've, we've had the, we've been able to shift their lens, you know, in a day long workshop, we can, we can plant seeds. You know, some people get really excited leaving a workshop, not other people don't, but the hope is that we've planted seeds so that down the road that they'll begin to see things differently. And that's one of the I think it's a positive, but some people would say it's a downside that you go through this process and then you start seeing it everywhere. And what are, what is some of the feedback you get from someone who, who goes to your workshop and starts seeing things differently? What, what kind of things do they tell you? Well, the, that, that, that they, first of all, they have a much better sense of, a much better sense of, of how they fit into this issue. They, they, I think I, I, it's really helpful when they do understand that they, they're part of a system in that, Again, it's not their fault. Um, they begin to see, I mean, our hope always is that there's some space for us to begin to talk about how do we impact this system? What work do we need to do internally? What work do I need to do interpersonally in my interpersonal relationships? How can I look at our in, the institutions I'm functioning in and impact those? And how can I, um, how can I help shape the, you know, the cultures that I'm functioning in, like in an institution? What's the culture and how is it perpetuating? So that they begin to see opportunities to be able to impact that system on those four dimensions. And so if someone has left one of your workshops or if someone has, has been listening to this series we've been doing you know, and has been really immersed in thinking about these issues, what are some of the um, recommendations you make to people about next steps, how they can continue this work, their own learning, but also take kinds of actions. Are there things that you ask people to do? Well, there's two things that come to mind. One is you mentioned one of them, that is that the significance of continuing their own learning and they can do, and, and, the, and the second piece is tied to that is that knowing that they can't do this work alone. It's really easy to leave this and just go back into white world and forget it. You know, one of the privileges I have as a white person is I don't have to think about racism on a daily basis for my own physical protection. I don't, I don't have to think about that at all. Um, and I, so I can't allow myself that privilege. Um, and sometimes that's an effort because, you know, but I've, I've gotten pretty good at, at that. So, so that there's the working on their knowledge, skills, and disposition. That's reading, that's watching videos, that's going to workshops. And secondly, is finding other people in their community who are interested in this and who want to work together and learn together. Uh, because if you do this alone, um, it's really easy to get burnt out. You need, you need support. You need, to, you need to create and find spaces where people can have these conversations um, and ultimately have these conversations where they don't have to explain themselves all the time every time they're having a conversation. Right. So I think those two things are, are essential. And you've listed a number of books during this conversation, and I want to just um, ask you, you know, if I was to create a reading list for myself of books to help me understand more about the history of racism or the dynamics of systemic racism, what would you, what would be, say, the top two books that you would recommend for that? Well, the first thing I'd recommend is a video series. Okay. And, and, and it's a series that was done on PBS called Race, the Power of an Illusion. 
All right. And unfortunately, that's not available. Segments of that are available online. It's a three-part series. The first part looks at race and biology. The second part looks at the construction of race. And the third part looks at these systems of, of looks very much at this um, housing policies and how that created present conditions and how, how privilege is handed down in that way. So I, I'd recommend that. Um, I'd recommend um, Tim Wise's book, White Like Me. Okay. Um, I'd recommend Debbie Irving's book as well. And that book is Waking Up White. Waking Up White. Wonderful. And I, I also want to ask you about the website of the organization that you led for so many years, um, Community Change Incorporated. Can you tell us how we can find that organization? Because I know they offer workshops. Sure. And that's what I was going to say. The one other thing that people can do is they can get in touch with us, and um, I, we'd be happy to talk with them about coming in and doing this this work at a much more you know in-depth level. Um, the, the website for Community Change is www.communitychangeinc.com. Org. Great. Paul Marcus, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. I've really enjoyed it. I feel like we packed a ton in, and I'm going to be digesting it for a while. Thank you. Same here. Thanks for the great questions. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show in its entirety and you'd like to, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. There you can subscribe to get a weekly link to that week's show. You can also listen to any of the previous podcasts in this series or in prior series. You can download the show to your smartphone for your morning commute. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also find us on iTunes. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.